this, 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 this show is brought to you by Safety FM. This episode of the broadcast and the podcast is brought to you by Arrow. The next generation error reduction and mitigation system. For more information, go to arrowhp.com. Well, hello and welcome to Safety FM. This is Jay Allen. Well, this is Tuesday of a holiday week, so hopefully you're off to a great start. Everything's winding up for you and you're able to take off to be on vacation or this quick little holiday that we have here for the remaining of the week. Of course, if you're here in the United States, you know that it is the week of Thanksgiving, so hopefully you'll be able to enjoy that. As far as for us here at Safety FM, we're chugging right along there. Everything seems to be going fantastic. We're getting to right around the end of the year here, and that's always some good times at good old Safety FM. So I get this question quite a bit in regards to how do we do this. So what ends up taking place a lot of the times is we'll record episodes on safetyfm.live or we'll stream them live as we're doing them. And then we release them in a podcast format. So it's kind of a combination of both things there. So you probably did notice that earlier last week, you did probably notice that we did have an ad running showing that this episode was available already on the streaming service. So if you went to the safetyfm.live, yes, that's safetyfm.live, we were already available there with this particular episode. Also, you can find us on the Google Play Store, the Apple Store, and then, of course, as an Alexa skill. So you can stream us 24-7. Normally what takes place is anytime that we record an episode ahead of time, we'll release it there before we release it into a podcast format. So don't be hesitant of listening to us there at safetyfm.live or, you know, the app format of your flavoring there. Anyways, be paying close attention to our website or our social media because we have an announcement of something that's coming up pay attention to it let's say wednesday the 27th give or take have a little special announcement i'd like to make there so be paying close attention to that anyways i don't want to take up too much time here and let me get you started on what we have going on today we have an interview with abby ferry now if you're not familiar with abby ferry go to linkedin go to social media she's kind of a little bit of everywhere she is inside of the safety space, and boy, does she have a story to share with us here today. She tells us about her career, how it all started, and how did she become a juggernaut inside of this space that we call safety. So enjoy the interview here today on Safety FM, the flagship show. Enjoy some of your favorite hosts in the safety world. Enjoy shows by Sheldon Primus, Blaine J. Hoffman, Jill James, Mike Sedham, Rob Fisher, Todd Conklin, and Jay Allen. So, should I start off with the congratulations? I don't even know where I should start. There's so many things that are going on in your world. So, I, ro- I, know. <laughs> I never know. I never know because you are, I mean, if we have to really put it out there, it's you're coming across as a safety superhero, which is a fantastic thing to be. So, that's Thank a great you. thing. So, cool. how did it all start? I, I get so confused on people's stories and I, I've been looking into some of your background stuff. And I can't see where the starting point is. So how did the journey really start for you? Oh, so, oh my gosh, I'm so sorry. Are we like recording right now or are we just talking? 
We're always we're always recording. Always recording. <laughs> the moment you get on to any kind of connection with me, it's being okay. recorded in some way, shape, or form. Okay, so I was like, he sounds like he's launching into it. So, um, okay, so I'll give some space and then I will answer it like the professional that I am because you asked me a question. <laughs> So I got into safety after working at a construction office in my hometown. So I was in, I think it was my senior year of high school, between high school and college. And I worked for a construction office, making copies, sending faxes, putting paychecks on people's desks. And two of the people that I would put paychecks down for were never in the office, yet the next morning the paychecks were gone. And so that was my greatest mystery that I wanted to know who are these people, how are they getting paid, and I never see them, but they get their checks. And I asked around and I found out that they were the safety guys. And so it became one of my career goals to be a safety guy. <laughs> so that's how the safety seed really <laughs> got planted. I met up with the two safety guys. I set a strategic appointment so I could learn about what they do because I honestly had never heard of a safety person or a safety guy or safety manager. So they both had gone to the local college in Duluth, Minnesota at UMD um, to the Master of Environment Health and Safety program. And so I was starting to go into college, I was going to UMD and I just kind of put it to the back of my mind that when I get to that point, I'll figure it out. And the guys both gave me advice that if I graduated from the program and liked it, that I would have an awesome job in the field of safety. If I graduated from the program and didn't like it, at least I had a master's degree in one year. So it was like a win-win. So when it came time, I had actually finished my undergrad in three years and I did not want to leave college. And so I checked out the MEHS program and got in and went through the coursework. And before the year was up, I already had a job offer and was ready to move to San Diego right after, right after college. So. It worked out really, really well for me that I was able to to find a job in the field that I wanted to be in right before school was over. So how does the initial shock then go for you when you leave Minnesota to go to San Diego? Because it's almost like a world of difference between the two. Yeah, that was the point. <laughs> um, <laughs> I wanted to get out. I, you know, I grew up in northern Wisconsin. Love it. Northern Minnesota. Love it. Love my college, UMD. But I was ready for a change. And one of the, the past graduates that came and visited our master's program, I remembered his advice because one, he was in construction, so I really was all ears, but also he was advocating that we should leave and that we shouldn't all be competing for the same 3M job or the same you know household name contractor job in Minnesota, that we should leave. And if we want to come back, that we could always come back. And if we have experience from elsewhere around the country or even around the world, that we could write our own ticket, whether it's back to Minnesota or to wherever we would want to go. So that advice always stuck out to me. I passed that advice on to other safety professionals or would-be safety professionals that are in college is to just get out, <laughs> just try a new place. And so I loved it. I mean, it definitely was a culture shock. And one of the funny things for me was that the weather 
was just so fantastic. And I was used to Minnesota sometimes, the weather would play cruel tricks on us. Like it would be nice during the work week when we couldn't enjoy it. And then it would be awful on the weekend. <laughs> and so I worried about this. <laughs> like I had a scarcity mindset about good weather days and I was living in Oceanside in San Diego. <laughs> and I realized, okay, most days are gonna be partly sunny wear a polo shirt, bring a hoodie if it might be 70 degrees because that became my new cold. So I definitely had the culture shock and the body shock of your blood thinning and getting used to that type of weather. No, I always love when you go to California and when it gets into the probably the mid 60s, it's what people start referring to it as hoodie weather. And it's like, what? What are you talking about? And that's exactly what it is. It's one of those things that that's when they bust out with their hoodies. So you're there for a few years. It looks like you're in between San Diego, looks like Los Angeles too. So you decide to, at some point that you were going through this different career path, you started it, but you end up going back to Minnesota. So why the, why the call back to the, to the North? Yeah, so I was in California for about 10 years, and in that time, um, you know, had several different jobs, mostly all related to construction, and at the time, it was the, the big initiative to build on the military bases that are in that area, and so based on the work that was going on, I would often change employers based on them needing a SSHO level six, which was a tough one to find someone with 10 years construction experience and a CFP. So I could write my own ticket working on base projects as a safety manager or site safety and health officer. So doing that type of work, but then also in the meantime, I had a personal life and I met the person that I married and we got married in Southern California and got that, uh, that sense that we wanted to start a family and own a home and, you know, safety doesn't really pay that much to, to, you know, continue that coastal lifestyle. And so, you know, for the people it works for, it works, but for us, it did not work. And so we started to look at, well, maybe we should check out. Minneapolis. Um, I had never lived in Minneapolis. I always lived up north when I lived in Minnesota. But we figured, well, Minneapolis is a city. It's in the middle. It's pretty mellow as far as climate, kind of. There's <laughs> professional sports teams. <laughs> there's concert venues. There's good food. Um, let's try it out. So we moved to Minneapolis uh, shortly after getting married and bought a home and had our, our daughter and so um, you know started our, our life here and I've been here since. So it's been good. Um, and when I came to, to Minneapolis, I was able to work on the association side of things. I worked for the Associated General Contractors of Minnesota and worked on um, providing services to the members as far as safety and health services and had some really fun projects and great networking with that position that still helps me to this day. So how does the love start occurring then for the construction side of the sa- of the safety world? Because this is not... At the time, and I'm going back into the past because things, of course, have changed throughout the years. It's not very, uh, very high demand in the female arena in that particular regard. So how do you fall in love with construction? Now, keep in mind, things have changed significantly now. But back then, you're going into a space that's mostly male dominated. So how do you fall in love with this? Yeah, I don't know why, but it was just right away. I loved construction. And that goes back to my first job when I was working just as an administrative assistant at a construction office that 
I, and maybe it's because I worked for a great company too. They just had a great culture that people seem to really live that culture and enjoy their jobs. And I loved the aspect of being out of the office and wearing jeans and boots and being outside and, you know, being in nature. And so I really, I think I liked construction. I loved construction from the beginning. And it's funny to, to bring this up. I haven't thought about this in a while, but now it's come up two days in a row. But yesterday I was speaking at a construction event here locally and we were talking about culture and community. And I was giving an illustration of how culture lives on, no matter if, if you're there or not. And I was able to repeat part of the culture statements from the previous, or from that very first construction employer that I worked for as a high school student. And part of their, um, their values is love of construction and so maybe that was instilled in me early on at that first employer and also just as a kid i mean i grew up playing with um my brother and the neighbor boy and we would play <laughs> so funny i've never talked about this um in professional life really but uh we used to play pit because the neighbor's dad worked at like a, a gravel crushing pit um and so <laughs> we would always be playing like heavy equipment stuff like really extreme sandbox types of, of <laughs> games and not just your typical things. Like we were running projects and, and you know making stuff happen. So and I'm still in touch with that that person, one of my first friends. Um, and he still works in the industry as well. So I think maybe it was like that early play and then also seeing that the adults still kind of played even when they were in their professional setting as construction um, professionals. So I think I just always picked up on that and when I was in my master's program, it was a cohort of about, I think it was 26 or 28 students. And again, this is early 2000s. A lot of the other, or the majority of the other students were vying for these semiconductor safety types of jobs. And I just had no interest. Um, as soon as I heard what a clean room was, I mean, clean, I'm this kid that grew up playing in the sandbox and wanted to be outside of boots on. Like a clean room, that turns me off just from the terminology. So I had no interest in competing with these other students for those types of jobs. And so whenever a construction-focused recruiter or um, mentor would come into our program to do a talk or to recruit, everyone would just point at me. They're like, construction, talk to Abby. And so they, they did it for me. <laughs> they, they forced this network on me that um, you know I'm still in touch with my very first mentors to this day. So uh, that that construction of just that love for construction has just always been there. And then of course going into my first position working in construction, it was a, a great family-owned company, just wonderful experience, really fun, dirty jobs that I got to see. And of course the military-based projects, just super cool things. I mean I just I love learning about what we're building and also how we're building it. So I just became a, a student of the entire process. I mean, the first company I worked for, we built water and wastewater treatment plants. And I wanted to learn more about what to even call the structures when I was writing my safety reports. I wanted to make sure I wasn't saying that 20 foot concrete thing over there, it was that's a digester and this is an aeration basin. And so I actually borrowed wastewater treatment textbooks from the civil engineers that I worked with. And they they would happily give me their stack of textbooks and say, well, have at it. 
nerd, <laughs> but it really helped me. It helped me talk to them. It helped me talk to the workers and just kept that love going for not only the process of construction, but the, just the things that we were building too. So how is it at the time being a civilian on a military base? And of course, being a female, which plays a big factor at the time. How is that doing the interaction oh, yeah. there? Yeah, and still, I'm still a woman. So <laughs> that, that has time. not changed, thank God. <laughs> <laughs> that has not changed. Um, and I, I failed to answer that part in the beginning, too. But it's just because it was almost a non-issue. Because I was coming straight out of college, a person that finished their undergrad in three years and got a master's in one year. So I'm coming out from the academic setting. And so I feel like that was something that was more stacked against me than being a woman in construction. So I guess you could say I had two strikes against me <laughs> uh, to some of the field people that not only was I a young woman, but I also um, was coming straight from the academic setting. And so there was definitely these um, these rubs of like, well, what does she know? What can she teach us? And, and I had the self-awareness to really stand out and, and say, well, I don't have a lot yet to teach you because I need to learn more about what you're doing and then I can take that back to my office, learn more about it and apply it to my safety stuff that I do know and then deepen my safety knowledge because of what I'm learning in the field. And so I feel that academic background is something that was more of a, a difficult hurdle to get over. But for sure, being a young woman on a construction site, I have had my challenges and also just being young too. Um, there's a lot of things that I think back now and I think, gosh, I wish I would have stuck out for myself more. Um, I wish I would have called things out because I definitely have kind of almost like a guilt feeling now that when I hear young women in the construction field having issues in the field with the, the men workers, I almost feel guilty that I didn't put these guys in their place earlier on, you know, 15 years ago. Um, maybe it would have helped i don't know um but i also think that being a young woman in the construction field when i was coming up in it i was surrounded by young men that were going into safety as well and coming out from the academic setting and i feel like they had a harder time uh and what i saw happening is that i could ask questions because it was assumed i knew nothing and so any question i would ask there was no judgment like she should know how that tool works. Well, I had never seen that tool before, you know, these particular saws or grinders or heavy equipment. And maybe the young men in safety that were my peers, they hadn't seen it either. But there was some kind of, because they're men, they were assumed to have certain levels of knowledge. And I was guilty of this too on the flip side with the construction workers that I would assume, oh, they're construction workers, they know this stuff. Well, they did it. So there was a lot of, um, read the manual type of conversations that would go on and I think we would learn from each other. So I would bring my safety knowledge to the workers, the workers would teach me about what they were doing. I would show up at the job site and the project manager, I remember this, Vince, I'll have to make sure he listens to this. <laughs> I showed up at Vince's office in the trailer and he looks at me and he's like, what are you doing? Get out there, go outside. <laughs> go outside, walk around, watch what they're doing, ask questions. And so at the time I was like, Ooh, rough, you know, um, but it was the best advice I could have gotten. I mean, I remember that particular job site and the lessons I learned on that project and the people that I would talk to and that it was a two-way street. I was getting so much information from them, so much knowledge, and then I could take that back and then bring safety stuff back to the, the crew and we would, we would learn from each other. It was wonderful. 
So I just feel that, yes, I had difficulties and those got better through confidence in my knowledge and safety and confidence in my ability to just ask the question. And so I think that um, curiosity was appreciated by a lot of the workers, especially, you know, not to be like ageist or anything, but the workers that had a lot of experience, they loved to talk about their job. And so I think that curiosity of mine, plus their desire to want to tell people about what they do and show off what they do, I think it was a great combination for, for me, for sure, to learn a lot in a short amount of time, but also for the workers to pick up on a lot of safety stuff too. So at what point inside of your career do you start looking at doing Women in Safety Excellent, and also known as WISE, and then the focus on the PPE that is not really designed for females? How, where are we ta- how long are we talking down the path when you start deciding that this needs to be a focal point? So that's pretty recent because I would say only in the past four to five, probably five years, because there was about one year, maybe less than a year, that I was a um, like a bystander to the whole WISE movement. You say <laughs> bystander. Support. What do you mean by that? <laughs> that I wasn't involved. Okay. I, I just, I looked at it and I thought, oh, that's interesting. Like women in safety. Cool. You know, and, and I forget which um, large ASFP safety, whatever year conference it was. I think it might have been Atlanta. So I'll just think of the year, um, maybe 2014, 2015. And it was at that conference that I just stumbled, literally stumbled over to the WISE Lounge because I wanted to plug in my phone and have a quiet place to take a call. So, you know, for some people, that's what the WISE Lounge is for. Um, <laughs> then I learned that all the stuff that the WISE Lounge is all about. I mean, I would later bribe people to come into the lounge to charge their phones and for a quiet place, but then keep them there by talking about WISE and the things that we were up to. So. It was a pretty quick takeoff from when I got involved, or from when I attended the first lounge um, until meeting Kelly Burnish right then and there. And then fast forward maybe six months or so, and I was talking to Kelly, and she was basically recruiting me to run for assistant administrator. And so, how that process works within ASFP and their common interest groups and practice specialties is that you're elected the assistant administrator, which is a two-year term, and then you automatically move up to the administrator position, which is also a two-year term. So do the math. I guess it may have been the 2015 safety conference, and then get on the slate or get on the ballot, and then I was elected assistant administrator. So I've been in really entrenched in WISE for the past four years. And so it was... The PPE focus came up as part of the Women's Workplace Safety Summit. And so that event took place um, last, let's see, it was, yeah, uh, fall of 2018. And our planning was back in January of 2018. And so it was during that time that we brainstormed, literally threw things up at the wall and tried to figure out what are three topics that we should be focusing on for women in safety. And so I think all of us knew that PPE fit was going to be one of the topics, but we still wanted to run it through the, the whole brainstorm and, and narrowing down process. And so it, it stayed. <laughs> it became one of the top three priorities along with workplace violence and also elevating women into executive roles in health and safety, environment, health and safety. 
So that's how the PPE thing came to be a thing. And then it just took on a life of its own. <laughs> it, uh, we had the safety summit. We talked a lot about the, the challenges. We had some action items in mind. And some of those are, are happening as we speak. And then the whole massive spacesuit thing happened where we learned that even NASA couldn't get the fit right for women, to, for two women that were similar size to do the same task at the same time. It was like, nope, only one can <laughs> because we only have one size. So I think the whole, the PPE fit conversation really, it blasted off <laughs> because NASA messed up, um, but NASA fixed it. And so I see that there's lessons that industry can learn um, and have, uh, better conversations around PPE fit and meeting the women's needs and concerns. And then also going to that effort can help the other workers as well. So how much improvement do you think has been in the space ever since the big focus has been out there that you're, you're pushing this and not NASA made reference to it as well. So now that you're seeing the push, what do you, what do you think? What percentage do you think we're further down the path? Are we at least at 20% or higher? I would say, I mean, because I, I don't know if it's like cynicism or pessimism or cautious optimism, but I think 20% might be a good a good figure because we're at this um, kind of random and project-based improvement. So uh, people have been sending me the, the news clips about Skanska and how they have developed a nicer women's cut vest with input from their women in the field. And so people are sending me that this week. And to me because I've got my finger on the pulse of this, it's old news because it's information I learned about over the summer and had it incorporated into ASFP's professional safety journal where they talked, it had a whole issue just about women and safety. And so it's something that it's been on my radar, but I'm looking for this stuff. So now, you know, six months later, it's trickling to people's radar who aren't as you know entrenched in this topic so i think we're getting there but again that's just one company and there's other companies out there that have done um, their own improvements the the vests are one thing um you've seen the signs on construction sites now that say women and men working or it just says crews working or you know something like that so i think People are understanding that words and terms matter and also understanding that we need to have a more customized approach to fit of the apparel and the PPE that the workers need to wear. Well, I mean, and the interesting part is that besides that you're doing all this focus on this stuff here at the time, you also at the same time change jobs. You also become the president of the ASSP Northwest chapter. So what's the secret to your success here? And let's not talk about the social media piece yet. Are you living 25 hours a day? Because I just don't understand how you do it all. I mean, there's a quote in there about Beyonce has 24 hours in a day and so do you. <laughs> so I, I look at that as inspiration. Um, I don't have any extra time. I I mean, I don't have 25 hours. But I, also <laughs> I was just wondering, you know, you never know. <laughs> but no, and then and yeah, besides that, you're, your mother as well. I mean, there's a lot of things you have going on. And I will tell you, there is not much that I'm able to do on LinkedIn without seeing 
a post or two that come from you. And, and I mean that in a, in a good way, don't take it the wrong way, but I'm just amazed on how much you're out there and you're involved. And it looks like you and um, Jason Lucas are coming up here relatively shortly doing a speech in Orlando coming up um, next year that you just recently posted, but you're constantly out there. And it just seems like you're, you got so much traction. What has given you the desire to get out there and really be so involved in social media? So it started out of necessity. Um, I So when we moved to Minneapolis, I had our daughter and I was working full-time for an employer that was a small business. And so they did not have to have any type of um, family or maternity leave at all. So we designed what we thought would be a fair and um, realistic plan and that involved me taking I think five weeks completely off which is nothing I learned <laughs> after having a child mm -hmm. um, and then coming back to work part-time and so it just didn't work um, I I had never been a mother before so I had had this identity of construction person and I've always been very involved with ASSP, ASSB back then and also AGC um, and other organizations. So adding this new identity of mother and finding out or figuring out day to day, how did that fit? How how do I want to be a mother? What, what am I into? How do I want to do this? And so I learned quickly that the part-time thing wasn't working because when you show up at the office, you're just there and people don't, they don't remember like, oh yeah, she's part-time, leave her alone. <laughs> um, so it, we kind of amicably split at that point, my employer and, and me at that time. And that's when I went into consulting on my own. So that was out of necessity as well, because if you just say, I'm going to be a consultant now, um, there's a lot that I didn't, it's not that I didn't think about it, but I just thought, I'll be fine, I'll be fine. Um, Back then, uh, you know, sitting with a, a newborn on my lap or attached to me physically, I was doing a lot of desktop work. So doing some insurance risk control reporting type of work. Uh, that's when I learned how to be an instructional designer for online training, which has been an awesome skill that's serving me to this day. Um, and also developing training programs for, for customers and written program review and development. So I was taking on all the desktop type of work that I could, that I could do after I fed my child and then she slept and that I could pick it up again at one in the morning, you know, if that was the time that I had. So uh, working with clients in several time zones and just doing all desktop work. And I emerged from that, I mean, my daughter turned, I think it was close to when she turned one, that I started to do some work outside of the home, doing some insurance risk control based consulting and aligning myself with different risk control consulting groups so that they could go out and do the marketing and, and get the work and then assign the work to me. So that was going pretty good. And then I think it was just that I wanted more. I wanted to go after some of my own clients and so as I had this entity that I developed called the Fairy Group. And what is that? You know, I, I would just put that out there and put on a business card and no one knows what that is. And so that was back in 2012, 2013. And, you know, social media was around, obviously, but I really feel that I started coming up, coming of age, you know, in social media as LinkedIn and Twitter and other platforms were starting to come of age as well. So I've 
learned along with them, and especially LinkedIn. Um, I, re I realized the value early on of these free platforms and being able to market yourself. And I, I felt that since I didn't have a company name behind me anymore, I mean, the fairy group was one thing, but still at the end of the day, it was just me. And so I had to use social media. I couldn't afford to, you know, rent an office space and put up a sign or be at a trade show and have a big display. Um, I couldn't afford to sponsor the cool golf outing, things like that. So I took the social media as my marketing tool. And it's funny that uh, a few years later, I started listening to the Gary Vaynerchuk podcast. And I, uh, along that time, I had been developing training materials for safety professionals on how to leverage social media to get their message across, whether it's in their own company or as an individual. And I developed this content model of here's how I do social media because people would ask me, well, when do you work? <laughs> and because they see me on social media all the time. Well, the Gary Vaynerchuk way is that you document, not create. So you document what you're doing instead of agonizing over what to create as far as content. And so I really took that to heart. And how I explained it to safety professionals back then was that I had my WordPress site where I would write like a long form blog post. And then from that blog post, I would develop images using canva.com as a, a free graphic designer looking resource. And then use micro platforms like Twitter, Facebook, uh, LinkedIn, and put content out in different ways on those platforms. And then voice came along, and then podcast came along, and then other things came along, like uh, writing technical content for trade publications, things like that. And so then Gary Vaynerchuk dropped what he called his content model, and I was so excited to read it. And then I'm reading it, and I'm like, this is what I do already. <laughs> <laughs> so it was exciting and validating to me that I just organically had taken advantage of and leveraged social media for myself. And it was what this professional who makes millions of dollars was doing. So now I just need to connect those dots to get that millions of dollars part again. So, so as you're doing this, and all of a sudden you're realizing that this is a you know, something that you can do that you can make some money off of. How often are you getting some of the people that are responding to you that are saying, hey, I want more content from you. And how does that go? And how are you able to help assist with their appetite of what they're wanting from you? Yeah, so I have ghostwritten in the past as a consultant. I've ghostwritten uh, social media content and blog posts and white paper content for customers. So that was something that when I set out as an individual safety consultant um, six years ago that I never would have thought to, to have as part of my business plan or business offering. And it's something that I still do to this day, um, even for the company I work for now. And so I'm a strong believer in having solid social media content out there, whether it is white papers that you're chunking down into a Twitter post or a LinkedIn post or just a picture or an infographic. I mean. There was one point where my goal was to make an infographic and that's how I stumbled on Canva. And so I not only made an infographic about the Minnesota OSHA inspection um, sweep of the local craft breweries, but I also have made probably hundreds of infographics and um, just fun graphic types of things to share on social media since then. So just utilizing the tools um, out there, but it has, turned into, I, I wouldn't say that people request more content 
I think people are, they're appreciative of the content that I put out there on LinkedIn, especially because a lot of people use LinkedIn as like their professional journal or like a magazine or a newspaper. It's how they get their news. And I think they're appreciative of it and they're just happy with what I post. I haven't so much had people reach out and ask for specific content. Um, I have had people reach out in uh, LinkedIn direct messages. And back when I was a consultant on my own, I actually closed business based on cold LinkedIn messages that people reached out to me um, based on seeing my social media profile and the things I post about. It kind of got a general sense and vibe of what I'd be like to work with. And they made that decision to reach out to me and ask to work with me. And so that led to some really fun and interesting work. So again, I mean, I'm, I'm just a huge believer and advocate of using social media for getting your safety messages out there and not with the direct uh, mindset that it's going to translate into sales, but more so like the Gary Vee mindset is that you put out content, just put out content and the business will come. So how does your company feel about you being so popular on social media, especially because you put out so much content out there? Do they ever get worried that you're going to share some of the content that might be going on inside of their organization? And how, how does that work out? What are you allowed to speak about and what are you not allowed to speak about? Well, we do have some social media rules and we've also set up a social media kind of a, a subcommittee or committee to that decides what to put out there on the different platforms. And so as an organization, we've decided that LinkedIn is a pretty good place to be posting content. And then we also use Twitter and Facebook. So those are the three platforms we're focused on here. Um, I definitely would love to mentor some of my coworkers on how to build um, their presence on social media and demonstrate their thought leadership. Because right now I work with a bunch of environmental consultants. And so it's a whole world that I am not super familiar with. And they're sending emails about updates to the um, endangered species registers. And I'm just like, wow, look at that bird. You know, that's amazing. <laughs> um, it's not endangered anymore. We should tell people about this. And so it's flipping some of their mindsets that when they, they send out news within the company, if it's things that don't relate to a client specifically, and it's just thought leadership types of information, that's great stuff to post on social media. So I'm pushing people that as I see these newsy pieces of information come out, I'm like, hey, I just looked up this, literally it was a bird, was one of the examples. I looked up the bird, it was a cute picture, and I thought, well, this would be a cool thing to share because it's not just sharing, hey, we're hiring, or we're gonna be at this conference, but it's, here's what we do. Um, and here's the interesting things that we do in our field. So, so then essentially you really have no restrictions on what you can and cannot speak about on your personal page on what you're posting on social media then? You know, the, the biggest restrictions would be client sensitive. Things. Okay. So, you know, you're not going to be posting identifiable photos from a client site in real time. Um, I recently posted a quote from a client where they're not identified, but I asked them if I could share the, the thank you that they sent me because I just thought it was so cool and I wanted to share it. So, you know, things like that, um, as it makes sense, but otherwise the general rule is just, be very smart about what you post out there well, and don't post things that identify what you're actually doing. Well, talking about things that are been posted as of this week, you were also, it was also announced this week that you're receiving a pretty big award on the evening of the 18th of November. Would you like to talk about that? 
Yeah, so um, <laughs> I got a call from Lydia Bao at the International Safety Equipment Association, ISCA, a few weeks ago, maybe over a month ago now, and I thought she was playing a prank on me. <laughs> she would have no reason to play a prank on me, but she was telling me that ISCA wanted to give me the Distinguished Service Award this year, and I still am... Um, completely surprised and honored and just really excited for this. <laughs> so it's called the Robert B. Hurley Distinguished Service Award. So it's named after a person who holds a bunch of patents related to mostly eye safety. So I started to read up on him and read up on past award recipients and still I'm just, just completely honored to be mentioned with the people that have received this award in the past. So, Abby, what are next steps for you? What do you see yourself doing here in the very, very short future? Anything new? Anything changing? You're still going to light the the social media world on fire. And then you said that you want to mentor some people. So I'm wondering, is there a blueprint that you have coming out or what do you got coming up next? I don't. I mean, I with WISE, we have a mentoring program for WISE members, and it's a model that's been introduced with other common interest groups and practice specialties within ASFP. So I love that kind of um, official mentoring where it's through an organization, they match you with somebody and it's very intentional. I've done about three matches like that with different common interest groups and a practice specialty at ASFP. And it's been really beneficial in each uh, scenario. I've been the mentor. And it's not so much like an age thing where I'm older than the people I'm mentoring. Like I've had a couple where I'm younger than the people I was mentoring, but they wanted to learn more about using social media and to build their business, build their brand. Um, so it was some very interesting and fun mentoring pairs. And of course, we're still unofficially then we're still in contact. So uh, with the ASFP official mentoring programs, they last about six months um, and everything's directed by the mentee. So the mentee is supposed to set up the appointments, set up the phone calls and drive that scheduling. So if, if a mentee wouldn't reach out to me, then I'm not going to, you know, track them down so I can mentor them. Oh, that's <laughs> good. Be, like, the student is ready kind of thing. <laughs> so, um, so I love that sort of, of process and program, but I also enjoy the unofficial mentoring and that happens a lot in especially LinkedIn, in the direct messages or in the comments or people reach out to me through email where they may have a project coming up or they're looking for a new job or have other specific types of questions. Or the most common question I get asked is, how do I become a safety consultant? <laughs> and so I, because I had that question asked of me so many times, I have written several blog posts about it and then package those blog posts into one super post that I call the uh, safety consultant toolkit. And so I made a, a fun image on Canva. And so once in a while, if I happen to get a bunch of those questions, I'll post it on LinkedIn or when people ask me just that basic question, how do I become a safety consultant? I say, well, you know, I, I'd like to answer specific questions that you might have. So take a look at these blog posts and let me know, you know, after that. And a lot of times people just, they don't follow up. So if you're going to ask, ask the question, um, make sure to come up with some thoughtful, specific questions. Um, because I 
can't quite answer the question of how do you become a safety consultant. I can tell you my story, um, which I've done in my blog post, but without specific questions from people, I can't really do much with that. So I caution people or warn them or try to, to coach people, try to come up with some specific questions and also don't approach a potential unofficial mentor with the phrase, let me pick your brain <laughs> <laughs> or even um, let's get coffee, <laughs> something like that. It's a little bit more high stakes. So, um, <laughs> so maybe it's you know along that line um you know like let's have lunch you know and buy me that lunch so that we can talk and i you know feel better about sharing all this information um but you know people are are busy and the whole brain picking thing is kind of you know out of out of date you know you want to make sure to respect people's time so that's why i try to push for those official mentoring pathways but also realize that because of social media and accessibility, um, that the unofficial mentoring is often going to take place. And I just, you know, look for people to respect um, people's time. So I think that's a big part of it too. Now, do you have any speeches coming up here in the near future where people can come and see you? Um, let's see, what do I have? I don't think there's anything left for this year. There may be some webinars. I know I'm doing a webinar for BLR on HasCom in December. Um, there's gotta be something else coming up and I'm not thinking of it. <laughs> but for sure next year, um, start, usually I start off the year in February with the local ASSP chapter professional development conference. And then uh, segue into safety conference season, which seems to kick off around May, June and end in November. Right. <laughs> so I try to keep, um, I keep my calendar as up to date as possible. And then I also track the events that I'm going to be at, whether it's an in-person thing or a webinar. I try to keep track of that on my website. So that's for my sake as much as for anybody else's. And that's abbyferry.com and then slash events to find out where I'm going to be or um, whether it's online on a, on a webinar or in person somewhere. And you said abbyferry.com is where they can actually find out more information about it, correct? Yes. Yeah. Oh. So that's my blog that I've maintained. I recently switched over from the fairygroup.co to just owning myname.com because it's something I recommended that people do for years. So I figured I should do it no. <laughs> practice what I'm telling them. So I made that whole switch over with the, um, the technology of using WordPress chat <laughs> and just asking them to help me. And they did the whole process. Oh, so nice. It was awesome. Made everything look really <laughs> professional. So. Well, Abby, I do appreciate you coming on to safety FM. Thank you. Thanks for having me. The views and opinions expressed on this podcast are those of the host and its guest and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the company. Examples of analysis discussed within this podcast are only examples. They should not be utilized in the real world as the only solution available as they are based only on very limited and dated open source information. Assumptions made within this analysis are not reflective of the position of the company. No part of this podcast may be reproduced, stored in a retrieval system, or transmitted in any form or by any means, mechanical, electronic, recording, or otherwise without prior written permission of the creator of the podcast, Jay Allen.